in, in just a moment, I'm going to invite Bella Poe up to read. But first, I wanted to just preface something. We have a, a guest preacher with us this morning. Uh, he's going to come up after Bella reads the scripture for us. His name is Ryan Smith. He runs the 6 p.m. services over at the Reno Church. He's a good friend of mine, one of the men that I hands down most respect over there. He loves God, loves the word, and we're just blessed. We are blessed to have him here with us this morning. So please, after Bella reads for us, let's just make an effort to really welcome him, okay? So with that, Bella, please come up and read God's word for us. I'll I'll set you up right there. All right, beautiful. Stole the mic. Today's passage is in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. On page 557 in the Bibles around the room, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as his the good, so is the sinner, and he who swears is he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. They love their love, their hate, and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved you what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy the life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever... I'll go a little slower. (laughs) Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there was no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shield to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those with knowledge, but chance and time happen for them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. 
Dear God, I hope that many people would trust in your word, and even people who have not trusted you today would trust you and everyone who lives here. I pray lots of missionaries will come and tell them about Jesus. Amen. Please take your seats. Oh, you can take it. You can take it. Bella, how old are you? Five. You're five? Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, howdy, Sparks. Hey, uh, as, as Taylor said, my name is Ryan Smith. Uh, I uh, am an elder candidate on staff at uh, Living Stones, uh, our Reno church. Um, and as he mentioned, uh, some of my responsibilities over our 6 p.m. gathering, and, and even in this season, kind of serving as a Swiss Army knife uh, at the Reno Church. Um, so I'm, I'm preaching on a regular basis, uh, writing our liturgy, uh, pastoring folks in our church, uh, kind of building out our uh, mission to the university, LS at the U, um, and then actually overseeing our student ministry as well. So I'm just kind of um, all over the place. Um, but I absolutely love it, um, and I'm excited to be here with you today. Uh, when I'm uh, not working at the church, um, I'm also uh, currently uh, just over 70% done uh, with my master's uh, in biblical and theological studies uh, at Western Seminary, which is based uh, out of uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, so that's been really fun. Um, when I'm not working at the church and not um, getting my head broken by Greek, um, and what actually when I'm, I am getting my head broken by Greek, uh, the other most important thing about me, um, you'll see the picture behind us, our little family, um, is uh, my wife, Erin. We've been married for seven years. And then uh, our little two-year-old, uh, Emma Kinsley. And uh, that little thing in the front uh, is our dog, Theo, who used to be, there's this thing that happens with dogs. Like they, before you have kids, you love your dog. You celebrate, he gets the treats, he gets the walks. And then as soon as the baby is born, he's a pest. And you want him out of the house, you're yelling, leave me alone, be quiet. Um, but we still have Theo. Um, so that's my family. Uh, Theo's still around. Um, and, and being a, a father uh, to a two-year-old is really fun because of moments uh, like this one. Uh, we had a friend over to do uh, some family photos, and I was about to leave to go preach at our six o'clock gathering a few weeks ago, and Emma wanted to give me a kiss on the way. But the problem is that having a toddler can also um, look with moments like this uh, as well. And so we, uh, we love it. This is, that's kind of our life is, is serving within the Reno Church, uh, working on, on school, and then, and then figuring out how to raise uh, a toddler in the meantime. And so like I said, I'm, I'm excited to be with you today um, as a part of um, what we call Living Stones is, is a family of churches. And so we have churches not only here in Sparks, but in Reno and Elko and South Reno as of last year um, and, and in Carson. And, and really, I love that language of family because um, it legitimately feels that way. Um, like Taylor said, we were at somebody's birthday party a few weeks ago. I mean, Greg Katz, who was just leading up here a minute ago, him and I were actually at a church in Noonan, Georgia, way back in the day. Um, and, and somehow we both made our way out here. Um, and, and so I, I, I really do see this as kind of almost a uh, coming to hang out with, with another part of my family uh, today as we look at look at the text. But like family, um, Kyle Bates, and I feel like it was like a big brother move, decided to give me uh, three chapters of Ecclesiastes today. Um, I showed up. He's like, hey, do you want to preach? And it's sparks. I was like, I would love to. That'd be such an honor. And he's like, okay, you have 9, 10, and 11. And I was like, oh my gosh. So why don't we uh, begin? Why don't we just jump into the text um, here in a moment? Why don't we set it up though? Because what we're at now, I mean, we have 9, 10, 11 today. Uh, and then next week, the back half of 11 in chapter 12, and then we're done with Ecclesiastes. Um, it's pretty insane that, uh, that we, are, we are here in the final descent uh, of the book, where if you've been with us, what we've found is uh, 
The book of Ecclesiastes is written by this individual referred to as the preacher. Uh, The Greek word that they use for preacher is Ecclesiastes. It's where we get the name of the book. And this preacher is kind of this jaded critic who's looking over his life, looking over the world. And he results in saying that that everything is, is vain, is the word that he uses, or vanity. Hebrew word being hevel, it's a smoke or a vapor. And as he's gone through this book, showing us how everything is vain, it's all hevel, he's been destroying and taking apart all of our delusions of being able to build our lives in a way that we would like, being able to have some sense of control over how our life is going to go. And so here in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the preacher begins to land the plane, as it were, by summarizing some of the main themes he said throughout the book and offering some kind of parting advice, some parting wisdom for what we should do moving forward. And so like I said, three chapters uh, this morning. And so what we're going to do is kind of touch down on a couple big points. Um, like you'll see over chapter 10, we'll kind of hit on a couple little verses, but um, I want to get you guys out of here before one, uh, one in the afternoon. And so, um, and so what we'll do is we'll kind of touch on things, really looking at the major theme of, of these three chapters, which is, uh, you'll see it on the slide behind me, is that death is certain and life is not that this is the driving point throughout it. And like I said, this is what he's here to say. This is what he's been saying throughout the whole book. Death is certain, life is not certain. Um, But what he does is he does offer us some little parting wisdom in the middle of these these things, these little breaks of advice where he says that death is certain and so he encourages us to enjoy our existence and trust God. And then he'll move on to say that though death is certain, life really isn't. We have no way of being able to pinpoint how our life is gonna go. And so he calls us to work wisely and to trust God. And so that's where we're going tonight, uh, this morning. I, I normally preach at the six, and so I'll, I'll probably say tonight multiple times. I'm still working on it. Um, and so what, what, I, what I hope that we see before we look into to the beginning of chapter nine is that whether or not you identify as a Christian, we, we often, all of us, um, really avoid the reality of death certainty and life's uncertainty. I mean, whether it is uh, distracting ourselves with these little pieces of uh, glass and plastic uh, in our pockets, or we pretend that we have some certainty in life by the amount of kale that we eat or the amount of times in a week that we go to CrossFit. We have desire to have some sort of certainty over our life. And what the preacher is going to set before us today is that you really don't. And so we need to just enjoy each day as it comes. And we need to work wisely in the midst of this. And so with that being said, let's look at chapter nine, verse one. And let's read uh, from Ecclesiastes here and hear the words of the preacher. So he writes, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. But whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. And so let's stop here. He opens this chapter by saying that all, everyone is in the hand of God, which sounds like a really nice sentiment, but what he gets at is he's not sure if that's such a good thing. Because he says, we don't know how God works. He says, we don't really know God's plans. We don't know how God works in the world. Why is it? a troublesome thing for him is this same event that comes for all. You see, the presence of whatever this same event is, and and as we'll see in a moment, he's referring to death, is that the presence of death in the world leads us to question, what does it mean for us to be in the hands of God? 
because we don't have that much control. Regardless of how they lived, whether they're swearing or shunning an oath, whether they're a sinner or, a, or they sacrifice on a regular basis, good or bad, righteous or evil, everyone dies and the preacher is left to contemplate, then what does that mean for life under the sun? Well, let's look in verse three where he continues. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also that the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And so what he says here is everyone lives. Every, everybody, has, everybody has life. That's not the thing that's surprising to us, that we're all at some point alive. The thing that's interesting, though, is that what our lives are filled with, are, it's madness is what he says. It's evil. There's confusion. There's vexation. There's anxiety about our lives that even while we're living, it's really all not that good. And then we die. <laughs> Happy Sunday. <laughs> Welcome to church. And so let's, let's just continue with him here. I want, I want to unpack, let him just speak as opposed to overly saying what, what we need to. But he says, but he who is joined with all the living has a hope. That word is a confidence. And why? For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. So pause here. And so he says that the hope or the confidence of those of us that are living and breathing and moving around each day and we're getting up and starting a new day. He says the good thing for you is that at least you're not dead. That's what he says. Your confidence is, is that, that, that you're not dead. And that's why he says better a dead dog than a living lion. A dog, similar to how you know, one is in my house right now, um, is not, you know, in our culture, the thing that everyone worships. And we have these little gods that live in our house that is just dogs spelled backwards. But he, but, but in, in this time and age, dogs were like pests. They were like raccoons. They would eat your trash. They were, they were, you'd have to watch your kids when you would take them through town because dogs could just come up and, and bite and go after your kids, steal their lunch. And, and what he says is that, you know, it's better to be a living lion, the thing that everybody hates, or excuse me, a living dog, the thing that everybody hates, than to be a dead lion, this thing with respect and pride. Like, it's better to be alive than dead, regardless of how your life is. And so this is what he's setting up before us. It's better to be alive than dead. But he continues in the second half of verse 5. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And so what he reflects on again is that that death consumes, it takes everything with it. It takes all knowledge. It takes all reward. It takes all of the emotions that you have. All of your life is just when death happens, it's gone. Everything that happened to you is is forgotten even is what he says. And if you don't believe me that this is how death works, I mean, just just think back to who was your great, great grandfather. Maybe you know his name, but what was his personality like? What What was the thing that made him laugh until he started to cry? Or even was he the sort of man that laughed? What was his hobbies? Who were his friends? What kind of car did he drive? If he had a car, what sort of, what sort of man was he? You see, we're having a difficult time putting this together. And, and that wasn't that long ago. And you wouldn't exist if it wasn't for him. And yet he's been forgotten. Death consumes all. I mean, even for those of us that we have some kind of delusion of, of getting big one day and being remembered and, and having some invention or some company that we start or some kind of music or art that we do that we will be remembered at best if you get to some of the highest levels 
of, of honor in culture and people loving your, you and pray, singing praises about your name at best, when you go, when you die, all that you will be one day is a difficult question on Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> where you're, where you're, you're going over, what's, what's his name again? That is, that is the best case scenario because death consumes everything. And so, and so what do we do about this? Because it's, it's this death being present in our world. He continues, why don't you jump down with me to verse 11. We'll come back to seven through 10, where he invites us that death doesn't work alone, but he actually has uh, some henchmen. Look with me in verse 11. He says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor red to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For a man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds caught up in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You see, because life is uncertain, death itself is certain. And you see, he introduces us here to these, uh, these two henchmen of death. For some reason, the image that came to mind this week was kind of the, the grim reaper. And he has these two little henchmen of time and chance that come and bring people to him. And that's what he depicts it as, these nets of time and chance that are grabbing people away and taking them off to death. And so what, what and, and that's really, as you think through our lives, that's how death works, is that it's normally through time or chance that people are brought to their death. See this, um, just this last week, uh, my, my, uh, my wife, Erin uh, and, and Emma, uh, were, were back home in North Carolina uh, for the week after her uh, uncle passed away. A relatively uh, a young, young man, um, about the same age as her, as her father. Um, and so he had just started having, you know, grandkids and entering into that season of his life. Um, and, and over time, cancer just began to, to show up within his body and, and come to a point that his body wasn't able to fight anymore. And so time brought him to death. And I remember growing up in middle school, or not even middle school, I was in elementary, probably fourth or fifth grade, that we had just uh, moved into a new um, city and, and I had a, a friend back in our old uh, church that uh, I had grown up with, this guy named Abe. And uh, my, I'd come home from school one day and my mom kind of sat me down and uh, started talking to me about my friend Abe, who's, who's my age at the time, 11, maybe 12. And uh, she was just telling me and explaining to me what had happened, that he was just skateboarding after school. And like it just hit a bump the wrong way and fell and just hit his head in the, the right way. And just on the spot, he just passed. 12 years old. Chance. I mean, how many times have, have you seen people fall on skateboards? We watch them on YouTube constantly. And, and yet, one time, and just hitting his head in the right way, and, and chance took him to death. See, life is not certain. Death comes unexpectedly. See, we are not the masters of our own fate. We are not the captains of the ship of our lives. This, this, this delusion that we have of being an autonomous self, that we can depend on ourselves, and, and, we're, and things are kind of safe if we just trust ourselves and follow our hearts— is, is a delusion. We're not the captain of our ship. We're not the masters of our own fate. What the preacher says is you are like fish in the sea just waiting for the net. You're like birds in a tree and, and chance is going, like a cat is going to take you. And so the temptation here is that when we see death 
and time and chance working together, coming after us, coming after people we love. It's for us to be filled with dread, for us to be filled with anxiety and fear. And yet that's not what the preacher recommends. That's not what the preacher recommends. Look with me back in verse seven, where he actually calls us to enjoy our existence. Where he says, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. So he says, enjoy what you eat and drink. In verse eight, he says, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. He says, enjoy what you wear. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vein. That's the hevel, the smoky vapor word, life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And so he says, enjoy the one that you're married to. Enjoy who you love. And in the verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that is the Hebrew word for the grave to which you are going. So what he says is enjoy what you eat and drink, enjoy your existence, enjoy the clothes that you wear, enjoy the people that you're with, enjoy your spouse, enjoy your work because you don't know when it's going to stop. Life is better than death. And so, but but what's worth noting is that the preacher doesn't call us just to a blanket hedonism of just go out and find pleasure. Because he said, I mean, if you remember, if you've been with us through Ecclesiastes back in chapter two, that he said that pleasure in and of itself isn't anything satisfying. Later on, he said that possessions in and of themselves will not give us what we desire. You see, he's not calling for foolishness or gluttony or greed, but actually a deep enjoyment of your existence that flows from, we'll look back with me halfway through verse seven. What it all flows from is that for God has already approved of what you do. You see, our ability to enjoy our lives, to enjoy our existence in the midst of death and time and chance is actually to trust God in the midst of it. And you see this word for approved there, that God has already approved of what you do is not so much the the Hebrew, the word behind this is not so much like a stamp of approval, but it's actually the word for pleasure or delight. That God is pleased as his people have pleasure. God delights in his children delighting in their lives. He calls us to trust God. And and this is, again, this is what separates sinful hedonism and, and worship. It's God being the central giver and Lord of your life and of what you have. Martin Luther said, you have as much laughter as you have faith. Your ability to experience deep joy in your life, not fleeting happiness, but deep resounding joy is directly linked to your trust in the God who's over your life. And so if you don't believe me, just just think about this, that you legitimately cannot enjoy what you eat and drink. One, when you are looking to it as God to give you comfort and satisfaction and pleasure in life. And at the same time, you can't enjoy your food when you, in your drink when you are constantly discontent with it, believing that God actually has something better for me. In the same way, you can't enjoy the clothes that you wear when you idolize them and you see them as the thing that give you identity when people look at you. The clothes that you wear, the car that you drive, your possessions. And at the same time, you can't actually enjoy what you have when you're constantly discontent and looking at the new iPhone or the Apple II, whatever's coming out, the new clothes, whatever it is that you feel like once I have that, I'll be able to. When you're discontent, you can't enjoy your life. 
It's the same with the relationships. When we idolize the one day when I get married, then I will actually be happy. And the why can't I be married to someone that I would actually enjoy? When we are in both of those places, discontentment and idolization, you can't enjoy your life and those that you have around you. The same is true with your career. When you idolize your career, when you, when you look to your work to give you everything, it will never, ever be fulfilling for you. And if you're constantly discontent in your career, it, it'll never be, you won't be able to enjoy it. And so the key to enjoying our existence, as the preacher says in verse seven, is that we receive this as God's delight and pleasure in the life that we have. To receive the ability to enjoy our lives as we trust him. And so you never know when time is going to catch up with you. You never know when chance might be waiting around the corner, when death will be there. And so the preacher says, enjoy existence. And so let's move back then into the fact that death is certain now to the fact that life is not certain. And so just a kind of overview, like I said, so we don't have to go verse by verse through all of uh, the rest of chapter nine and, and, and 10. What he does here in 9 and 10 is he gives a set of different parables and proverbs that are reflecting on the uncertainty of life, specifically in that wisdom is uncertain in life. The wisdom doesn't work the way that it should, that wisdom is wise, it's smart to be a wise person, but because of time, chance, and death, wisdom can't really promise you anything. And so he begins with this parable at the back half of uh, uh, back, back little bit of uh, chapter nine, where he tells this story, this parable, this example of wisdom, showing how time, again, one of the henchmen of death, he actually breaks wisdom. I'll read over this story and then, and then I'll just kind of reflect on it. Let's just read this little parable. He goes, yet I was also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it and a great king came against it and he besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise are heard in quiet and are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons, but one sinner destroys much good. And so what he reflects on is that the wisdom that saved the city, the wisdom that saved the town that everybody praised him over just a few years now, everyone despises this man and his wisdom. And so wisdom is good is what he says, that it's, it's better than, you know, the shouting of, of foolish rulers. But the thing is, is that it doesn't bring about the sort of honor that you would expect wisdom to. And that's because time has a way of breaking down wisdom. And then at the middle of chapter 10, this is such a cool little thing that he does, like Bible nerd thing, but um, look with me in 10, eight through 11. And before I read it, what he does is it's this cool little Hebrew poetry way of he starts with the fool who gets bit by a snake. And then he's gonna end it in verse 11 with the wise person getting bit by a snake because of chance. And then he's gonna, in the middle, he talks about the uh, foolish person, excuse me, the wise person who dies because of an ax and then the foolish person who dies because of an ax. So let me just read that. It's, it's a really cool little way that he does this, where he's reflecting on how chance breaks wisdom. So not just time, but now chance breaks wisdom too. So he says, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. This is the, it's an image of someone that's being a thief. So the foolish man who's trying to steal, he breaks into the house, he gets bit by a snake. 
He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. The guy that's doing his job, splitting logs, his very work endangers him, is what he says. But he says, if the iron is blunt and the one does not sharpen its edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. And so the wise man gets crushed by the logs he's chopping. The foolish man gets exhausted because he didn't sharpen his axe. And then if, again, verse 11, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. And so he just reflects on a good, wise, you know, uh, serpent charmer charms his snake. But you know what might happen is you have to charm a snake and there's a good chance you're going to get bit while you're doing that. So he reflects here that not only does time break wisdom, but even chance. The foolish man and the wise man, both of them, if there's an ax involved, it could go poorly for both of them. The foolish man and the wise man, both of them, if there's a snake involved, it's going to go poorly. Chance has a way of breaking down wisdom. And so what he's doing here is he's reflecting on what he's been saying throughout the book that, that wisdom seems to be broken. It doesn't seem to offer what we desire and what we need. But he does show throughout chapter 10 that wisdom actually is wise because it has a way of delaying time, chance, and death. You see, in verse uh, uh, four of chapter 10, he reflects on the fact that being calm in the midst of conflict can actually lead to peace, peace being kind of helpful if you're trying to live. In verse 12, he talks about how wise words will earn favor. That is, people will not kill you. You will not die before your time. In verse 20, he talks about not cursing your king and that your king won't kill you. So he says there's a way that wisdom is good because it can stall. It can delay time, chance, and death. But really, it, it, all it can do is stall them. So it's good to be wise, but it, it, all it can do is delay the inevitable. And so the uncertainty of life, like the certainty of death, can lead us to anxiety and fear and dread. The uncertainty of life can lead us to anxiety and worry and obsession and perfectionism. And so look with me. Let's jump now over to 11, and let's see what he says here. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. What in the world? Just like talking about going down to the truckie and just like throwing loaves of bread into the water. This is a strange little proverb uh, that, that oftentimes it's strange. I heard, I was like looking into it this week. There's a song by the, the Gaither uh, family. They're like this like gospel singing team uh, where, where their whole understanding of this proverb and, and some others is that this is a call towards like radical generosity or like um, kind of the idea of paying it forward or karma, you know, people paying for whoever's behind you in line at Starbucks and like just letting that happen. There's some people that would interpret that. The strange thing is in the Hebrew, instead of the cast your bread upon the waters, it literally just says, ship your grain overseas. So he's not talking about bread. What he's, what he's calling for is he's going, life is uncertain. And so be wise with your investments. He's just saying, don't put all your money in one, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But, but think through what might happen to your money. And so, you know, don't have all of your, your finances in one place. And that's exactly what he continues in, in verse two, where he says, give a portion or literally the words merchandise to seven or even eight for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. Don't send all of your goods with one guy. What happens if a thief comes? What happens if there's a flood? What happens if that guy just falls over and dies? He says, then your, your merchandise is lost. So split it up between, you know, seven or eight guys and, and be wise with, with your work. And so in the modern way, like, how do we do this now? Like, do I need, like, I don't even have grain. Like, what do I do? What do I just start shipping things overseas? I think legitimately it's just a call for us to be wise with our money. I mean, he's legitimately just going, hey, get, life is uncertain. Get life insurance. Hey, life is uncertain. What's your savings account look like? Hey, life is uncertain. Have you thought about retirement? He's just saying life is uncertain. So don't, don't just assume that everything's always going to go well. But, but plan. 
for things to go wrong. And that's what he says in, in verse 11 is, is that we don't know what will happen. And, but in verse three, he says that what will happen will happen. He says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. And what he says is just that the uncertainty of life means that you, you need to prepare for the unexpected to happen. And that you do need to keep in mind that in preparing, your preparation doesn't keep the rains from falling or trees from falling. What will happen will happen. And so that's where he moves then into verse four, where he says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And so then, so he's just moving. Don't be a perfectionist within your work. This is all him just building up a case for how to work wisely. He depicts a farmer who's looking for the perfect time for both to heart, to, to um, sow seed and then also to harvest it. He's making sure that there's not any wind that'll blow the seeds away. He's making sure that the rain's not coming that will uh, ruin his, his uh, harvest. And the preacher just goes, man, you don't know how things are gonna go and how they're gonna go is how they're gonna go. So just get to work, work wisely. Think through things, plan through things, but don't think that you're gonna be able to control your life through your wisdom. He's criticizing the perfectionist. I mean, I remember, again, the modern thing. I had, over the course of one week, two different pastoral meetings, one with a college student, and she was talking through with me how she couldn't settle into a job. She literally, over the course of two months, had gone through like four different jobs, just like ping-ponging all over the place. Well, I didn't like the pay here, and the manager here was mean, and I didn't like this. And she was looking for this person. She was, she was waiting for it not to be windy or for it not to rain. And I was just saying, girl, you just, you got to jump in, and you have to work consistency and faithfulness in work is far more beneficial than you having the perfect circumstances. This is true for all of us, not just for the young. At the same time, again, that same week, I had another college student who came in and he was just kind of like sitting on his, on his hands and he wouldn't take a job because he was just waiting for the perfect opportunity to show up. Just waiting for that perfect job. And I was like, dude, get out of your mom's basement, get a job, it's time to go. Quit waiting for this perfect. He was waiting, wanting to be this photographer and have this cool. And I was going, bud, like, it's just not going to work that way. You got to get in. You got to start working. You got to work wisely because you don't know how long you got. Like nobody, anyway, I won't go there. Um, so look with me in verses 11 and uh, five, uh, chapter 11, verses five and six. He goes, as you do not know, the way of the spirit uh, comes to the bones in the, woman, the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So in the morning, sow your seed and at evening, Withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. He goes, hey, sometimes one of the things may fail, but sometimes maybe both will win. Hey, there you go. That's beneficial. But what he points to is this, in verse five, the mystery and the miracle of, of new life, of pregnancy. And he goes, in the same way that you don't know how a soul comes in in, in, in all that wonderfulness, that, that somehow when this child is born, it is a human being that even before that is a human being with a soul. And he goes, just as you don't know how that happens, he goes, you don't know how God works. So work wisely, trust God, just work wisely. You don't know when the storms are gonna come, when the winds are gonna blow. So just work wisely. Don't, don't be looking up at, at, at your circumstances. Just put your, put your head down and work. Enjoy your existence. And so this is what the preacher calls us to. He gives us wisdom for living in a life where death is certain and life is not. He calls us to enjoy existence, to work wisely, and to trust God. And now here's the thing. This is good advice, right? This is wise. Quit trying to control your life and just work wisely and just trust God. 
This is good advice, but it's not satisfying counsel. Legitimately. Because what he says is one, as we read it, we're kind of going, this, this is just like, and this is helpful pointers. But the thing is, is even seven times in the passage, he reflects on the fact that the presence of time, chance, and death are evil, is the word that he uses. Death and his henchmen are evil. And so yes, with the preacher's advice, we can try to enjoy our existence. That's wise. We can try to work wisely. That's wise. But what the preacher doesn't seem to deal with is how do we trust a God where time, chance, and death are in his good creation? He opened and closed the passage in 9.2. He says that all are in the hand of God, but whether that's love or hate, we don't really know. And then he closes in just as the miracle happens with childbirth, so you don't know how God works. The preacher says there is evil in the world, time, chance, and death, and somehow God is in control. But he doesn't give us any hope in the midst of that, any truth, anything to look forward to. And for many of us, this is a source of doubt in the midst of our faith. And for many, this is what keeps us from faith. Why did God let that happen? Why are time, chance, and death in God's world? Why are, why are death, why are freak accidents of, of young children falling on skateboards and that being it? Why are, why are men robbed of the gift of being a grandfather? Have you, have you wrestled through with this reality? If not, you, you will. We have. This is part of the human existence. And this is the question is, the problem, the problem is the preacher, all it seems he can do is shrug his shoulders and give some pointers. I don't know. I guess just enjoy it while you have it. But what's worth noting is you have your Bibles, hopefully still sitting open, is that clearly Ecclesiastes, there's far more Bible than it. And so surrounded by Ecclesiastes is uh, this hope for the people of God that would agree with the presence of time, chance, and death, and yet look forward to with an anticipation the fact that God is going to do something about them. I mean, just look at this. Isaiah 25 is uh, on the screen behind me. This is so good. With the prophet Isaiah, he speaks and he says, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach, that is the word for the sin of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. For God's people in the time of Ecclesiastes around when this book was written, their understanding was time, chance, and death are present and we don't understand how God's gonna do something about it, but he's promised that he will. And so we look with anticipation and hope with the day that he will deal with time and chance and death and death's employer is what it says in Isaiah 25, sin or our reproach. So in the meantime, we enjoy our existence, we work wisely and we trust God, hoping that he will do something great. However, there is a hinge that our Bibles turn on and and with that, the story of humanity With the arrival of the New Testament, what we see is that hope that Isaiah had has actually shown up. The future work of God that the people were waiting for has actually shown itself as God himself in Jesus Christ. I mean, like the classroom westerns when the righteous stranger walks into town to deal with the corrupt mayor. This is the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament. The people living underneath this corrupt mayor for years and years, and he's been keeping the water from them, and his henchmen are walking around town, and they frighten the people. Jesus, like this righteous stranger, walks into town to do something about it. But what's crazy is the story seems to end tragically as Jesus 
It seems the story ends with him on a cross where the villain once again won and his henchmen celebrate as they've claimed another victim. But what we celebrate in less than a month with Easter Sunday is that this is a twist ending in the story of humanity. That three days later, Jesus resurrected to life, defeated death and his henchmen, and in so doing so gives us not just good advice regarding time, chance, and death, but good news. Or as Peter preached in the good news in Acts chapter two, you'll see it behind me. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered according to the definite plan, not time, and foreknowledge of God, not chance. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised them up from the dead, loosing the bonds of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what what Peter does here in Acts chapter two, even if he doesn't know that he's doing it, is he's picking up Ecclesiastes and he says that God in his sovereign over chance, eternal over time plan was to turn death in on itself. See, Christ is the sovereign king who emerges and he just shoves chance down. He comes up and and time thinks that he catches up to him and the eternal son of God pushes time away. Death thinks he won, but Jesus resurrected over him. Sin thought that he had taken us all captive and Jesus broke us free. And so for us here that are willing and we come to Jesus as this victor, as the hero of our story, well, Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians gives us the great hope. He says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that was written. And he quotes Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's not hevel. It is this reality. It is that death will be swallowed up. And this becomes the basis for how we trust God in the midst of a world where time, chance, and death are still on the prowl. Like the people of God in past times, we look forward to the day when Jesus will make his victory over them complete while looking backward to his resurrection as the down payment on that victory. And so in the meantime, we can actually receive the advice of the preacher where we can enjoy our existence as victorious sons and daughters of our resurrected savior. We can work wisely abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it is not hevel, And we can trust God because for those of us who have come to Jesus, it is life that is certain and death that is not. Let's pray. God, we turn our attention to your son. And Father, we we just acknowledge that it is difficult to live in a world with time, chance, and death. Um, It's uncertain. And God, we have seen uh, these things not only take from our own lives, but God, even take people from us. And this leaves us confused. And so God, our our one hope is seeing that your son Jesus has entered into this with us, that he has allowed time, chance, and death to destroy him and has emerged victorious over him.
So Father, will we remember his victory as we come to the table? And we pray, amen.